Really excited to have you here. Um, been looking forward to talking to you for a while. I know. Yeah, it took uh, it took a while to make it make it happen. I'm glad we did. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into security in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't intentional at all. I, I so I I like taken that year off where I was like doing a lot of of this like language model stuff, doing a lot of bio stuff, and then doing a little bit of solidity. And as I got into the solidity, it was just like oh, immediately I'm like this feels different. I like it. I'm in. I'm going to start that company in this space. Decided not to, and so I was like left Scribe. I'm like oh my god, I'm four months into learning solidity. I think it's really fun. I just left this company that I spent seven years working on. Uh, like, what do I do on Monday morning? And so I was just like poking around, having fun. I like, there was still so much to learn. So just like doing like little tutorials and building stuff and doing like some freelance little like dev projects and just like playing around and taking any excuse to learn. And part of that was someone sent me Ethernaut, the like open Zeppelin CTF kind of challenge. And so I did that and like, had so much fun, like just like spent a week just like doing that every day and figuring out these things that were like all so new to me and like didn't know any of the security ideas, you know, like this was all, all brand new. Uh, so I like, loved that, but then finished it and was like, okay, nothing to do with that. I'll move on and just like building some bots and just like playing around. Um, and then someone mentioned Code Reamer to me. So I was like, oh, this thing's interesting. Um, but I'd had a bunch of dev projects booked. So I like did one contest and I like found one medium and was like, whoa, this is cool. I just like a real developer, I found a bug in their code, I can't believe this. And so then like, but then like didn't do anything for a long time, whatever. And then started to, so this was like, uh, that was like last summer. And so last August, I like did a bunch of code arena contests and failed miserably at every single one. Uh, just like could not, could not quite get it to work. Maybe it was July, whatever, last summer. Um, and at some point, was kind of like, okay, cool. Like time for me to move to the next thing. Like I've got this big list of stuff I'm interested in. I want to play with whatever. And then had the thought of like, if I knew I was going to be good at this, would I want to, would I be happy? Like, am I bailing? Cause I think I can't do it. And it's like, oh no, I'm just bailing. Cause it's like, I don't like not being good at this. I'm like, oh, I should just try harder. Uh, so like decided to actually take it seriously. Like I, I hadn't like tried to learn any security at that point. I just like opened up a repo for a code arena contest and truthfully just like skimmed it and then ignored anything that wasn't steal all the funds. <laughs> Didn't know what I was doing at all. Uh, so like learned a bunch, started to get some like decent results, uh, met a guy who I partnered with on a bunch of contests that was hugely helpful for me because he both saw things in a really different way for me and also was much better with saying like, hey, this little thing that you're saying isn't a big deal is actually like, look at the situation. This could actually be like a medium severity thing that you should be submitting. And so like really helped me with like calibrating there. And after those like month of really trying month with him, all of a sudden they clicked and was like, all right, now I can actually do this. So did a ton of Sherlock stuff through the fall, um, came first in, in like, I think my first like five Sherlock contest, first or second. So I like, became senior Watson pretty quickly there. Um, and yeah, from then on, which is basically like, this is incredibly fun. I love it too much to stop. I, uh, have like way too many things I want to do in this space and have just been like nonstop focused on it since. Uh, so that's like, yeah, this year has been, has been like more, a lot more like acceleration of that. I, uh, did a little bounty hunting and had some like really good results with that. And then, um, yeah, did like some of the bigger Sherlock contests, like the optimism one that, that went really well. Um, and then I've done a bunch of private audits and, and some spearbed stuff. So just like, yeah, continuing to like learn and go all in on trying to find the, find the best 
best bugs I can. And since you started having some success as an auditor, has your auditing approach changed much? I remember you saying that you had a question base, uh, a question database yeah. based on the the problems that you couldn't solve and then what questions you used to ask yourself. Yeah. Do you still use that? Has your overall approach or um, tools that you use changed at all since that period? Yeah, I feel like I kind of went through, like at the beginning it was like so rushed and so not thorough. And slowly I kind of like built up more systems in some way that was like, oh, when I'm, when I'm really, when I was like in like, I need to learn what I'm missing mode. It was like any contest I'm doing, anything I miss, I'm like thinking like, why did I miss that? How did I miss it? What could I have done to catch it? Um, what is there like technical knowledge I was missing that I should learn? Like just like trying to fill in all those gaps. Um, and so, yeah, I had that like database. I was, um, yeah, it was like trying to be a little more regimented. And at some point after focusing on this for longer, I started to find that when I'm going back to the database at the end, Oh, every, I'm like, I've already thought about all this stuff. So like, I still do it, but that has basically like, as I've gotten more experience, as I'm reading the code, those things are all triggers that come to my mind now, you know, like it did a job, it's job. They like got ingrained. Uh, so I still not like maintain that and add to it and like spend some time with it on every audit. But for the most part now, I'm much more focused on just allowing myself to move slowly. So like, I look at the time I spent on those early code arena contests, I tend to be like, someone who moves pretty fast with like almost everything I do. Um, and now I'm like, holy shit, I spend so much more time. Like I move so much more slowly. Uh, and I, even now there's like contests where I'm like, oh my God, I feel like rush trying to squeeze this into a week. And at the beginning I was like, oh, one day I'll move on, whatever. Uh, so it's, a lot of it is just allowing myself to like really take the time to be like, oh, I have like this one idea of something that might be off cool, maybe that's like a day of this contest. And like before that, I'd be like, I'll spend five minutes on it, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think I've like gotten better that my first pass is really good at surfacing like every avenue that seems interesting to explore. And then I basically get to spend the whole rest of the time going down those rabbit holes and, and, and kind of seeing where they go and then kind of like review that database at the end to see like, is there some different perspective on this I might've missed? So yeah, it feels like it's like simplified a little bit. And when you're doing the first pass, do you do any diagrams? Do you take any notes? Are you yeah. just writing tags on VS Code? Yeah. How does that look so like? primarily tags on VS Code. That's like my like that's like what's guiding what I do after that. But in order to understand things, I've got one of those like remarkable tablets. Uh, I used to use paper, and I was just like throwing away stacks of paper every day. I'm like, this is this feels uh, feels wrong. Uh, and sometimes I'd want to go back to it and not keeping my like 10,000 pages of paper. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I use that tablet and mostly it's like, I'm not like drawing things that are like then become like a definitive resource for me. It's mostly just like sketching things out to make sense of them. Um, yeah, there's a few patterns that I'll do in those points, especially during the deep dive places. One thing I do, which maybe comes from like, I used to do a lot of formal verification stuff and we can, we can talk more about that if you want. I'm like getting into it a little bit again. Um, but one thing I'll do, like part of the process with the formal verification I did was basically translating functions into pure math, so, like translating them into like concatenated and, and an if statements that capture only the state changes based on different conditions. And so I'll, I'll sometimes do like, 
uh, a like shabby version of that, which is like go through the go through a function, especially when it's got like a lot of nested calls to other things, and just like inline everything into like what is this actually as like a tree of if statements that lead to state changes, and very often that exposes like. Uh, state that could get changed twice if two branches are both taken that are possible to both take or like uh, conditions that weren't considered or whatever just like very formally almost like writing out the spec for it based on what it was or based on how the code is written um, so for really complex things I'll sometimes do that and then I'll also this is weird I don't know if it actually is useful but often with longer contracts I'll be like handwriting the like structs and storage uh, and there's something about it that as I then scroll down the rest of it, I, there's like this connection where like very often I'll notice like um, a struct is like set up in some place and they like missed setting one of the values or they like assumed it's zero. But because I've got it written, I like noticed that it was there's something about visually having all the storage stuff in front of me, like sitting on the paper as I look at it, that somehow helps. But I don't I've never recommended that to anyone else because I don't know if it makes sense. It just a weird like tick almost um but yeah mostly i'm just like doing little like if there's like math stuff i need to do i'll do it on paper there's like little diagrams of like seeing how the pieces connect but i'm not doing anything like big and formal and trying to like polish that i'm mostly just like reading and writing to make sense of things yeah i think your approach to handling math heavy situations is very interesting because i notice you always have like invariants and I think the the tree that you mentioned that you do is also very interesting. Could you maybe share uh, some files where yeah. like you can display it with us yeah. later? Because I think it would be interesting to like have a look at it and try to like you know connect to what you're saying yeah. to like what you actually do. I think you will be. And if more, I'm you, if I'm if I send you an honest good file, you should be like kind of unimpressed, which is good. It's like very. The goal is for it just to be like sloppy and like but like very clear uh, of like. If this happens, we go down and kind of like tabbed in just like, what is, if there was no rest of the protocol, what is everything that happens here? Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll share some with you. Yeah, that's cool. And for the, the math part of things, how do you like distill the properties and like what should hold, what shouldn't hold? And how do you transform that into something like useful that you can just kind of like look at quickly? that's a hard one i i like kind of have a weird math intuition so it's like not not for like i don't think i'm great at like very complex math but fortunately like not a lot of blockchain stuff is very complex and i have a very good intuition for somewhat simple math so i i think there's like a okay so so i didn't i never used sertora a whole lot but the idea of how you build up invariance in sertora is like it's not it's not exploring the tree of like, if you make eight function calls, where will you get? And so like Sertora, what it's doing is it's taking EVM bytecode, it's turning it into like math properties that can be solved by a Z3 solver, like an SMT solver that, that says whether this is explicitly something that will always hold or whether there are exceptions to it. And if there are exceptions with their, what they are. So it's like fuzzing on steroids that it checks every possible path. Um, but they're not saying, well, we're going to go down every path and call every function 18 times and see where they lead. They're saying, we're going to take a before state. We're going to call any function with any parameters once, and we're going to take an after state. And so the problem is, if you make assumptions in your before state that aren't true, then it could say you could never get to the after state, but actually you could. 
And so the recommendation is that you build up these before states from like primitives, right? So it's like, okay, I know this is true. So I can prove that this will never be true. And so if I know this is never true, then I can use that as a precondition somewhere else. And you're kind of building this tree. Um, and there's, so I'm like, that's like very much what's happening in my head. There's, there's like a, um, there's this like, okay, if we turned everything into symbols and said, could I simplify this to, to a math formula that like has to hold, or as you do that and turn it into symbols, do there start to be some assumptions that shake out of it? Uh, so like an audit I'm in the middle of right now, there's like a pretty complex, it's like not complex math, but it's like moving a lot of variables around and saying like, okay, we, when we distribute funds, this is updated in this way, this could be split or could not be split between these two people. This, you could push or pull, so either this state has changed or this state has changed. Um, and I've just been really focused on like, okay, if I've changed all those to symbols and I, is there a path here where I could say like, okay, we're saying A plus B equals C and C equals D plus E. So do I know that I can just like rearrange these things and plug in formulas and simplify it down? Um, and I think once you translate like verbose code with meaning into these like very clear sets of state changes, uh, it starts to feel a little more obvious. Um, and in the cases where it's not obvious, that's where I've been playing with more formal verification stuff. It's like, okay, can I just, can I, can I kind of like either fuzz or do invariant testing or use Halmos to kind of like prove these before and after states have to hold. And that like, if this cycle is happening, we know that it's like, uh, like tightly connected and there's not like strangling, like, like dangling assumptions. Yeah, so it's almost like you're trying to make sure the assumptions that you need to have before you run like a formal verification are actually the assumptions that, like assumptions that you can make. Right. Um, I remember when we were, were doing this after audit, not together, but uh, simultaneously, you found this one bug that I tried to look for and I couldn't find. I was like, God damn it. I like, I was so close. Is this the, like the the uh underflow from the from the math library or a different one yeah yeah, yeah. so like, i mean that one yeah that truthfully that was a, a strange experience because i th there was no reason to think that that should be off you know it's not like i read the math functions and was like ah, there's something fishy here it was like the actual underlying problem was that in a pr that was submitted to the library recently um they had done this like direct bit shifting to do exponentiation and they missed one zero in one of the like 50 lines. There's no fucking way I'm patching that or even having any intuition about it. Um, but clearly I was, I was like bothered by the fact that they did this unchecked math because it was basically saying there is no way that the balance of anyone's stream should go down as timestamps move forward. And I'm like, I know that's true, but something about it was just bothering me that I was like, no, fuck you. <laughs> I can make it go down. Uh, and like, I don't think I had any good intuition. I just had this pull towards like, I need to waste time on this. Uh, and I was really lucky. I had something that you didn't have, which was I was doing it as a team. Uh, and Rusty Rabbit had come out of the gate hot. So like I found a few things early on and he found like, eight mediums in like the first like two days and so i was like all right we're in good shape right now i don't feel like i need to be like 
Like, I feel like he's done an amazing job of finding a lot of these things that would have taken more time. I can go down this route. So when I was like two hours into that, I'm like, I can go another two hours. It's all right. Like I could, I could burn half a day on this, even though it's almost certainly going to be useless. And there were moments where I was building up this fuzz test. Like, what the, I'm, am I just doing this for fun? Like what, if, this isn't going to be a problem. Um, but yeah, basically just got obsessed with like, can I make a test that proves that without a doubt, it is impossible to ever have the balance go down when the times go up. And eventually after like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can share the share the test that got me there if it's useful to add to that as well. But um, it's quite quite a large file, uh, but it was able to show like there's this weird edge case, and I, I uh, yeah, my like Discord conversation with him is hilarious. Where I'm like, there's something wrong. I can't figure it out, but I'm, no, I'm onto something. I'm, I'm going to disappear for another few hours, and, and yeah, eventually kind of like pinned it down to this one math function that was causing a problem that that trickled through to be able to cause an underflow that could lead to, to big consequences. Yeah, I think for me, uh, besides the collaboration and time advantage that you have is also the the way you shape your fuzzing test and you were able to kind of like iterate for different like assumptions. I think that was uh, also what I'm referring yeah. to. That's probably something that a lot of people can benefit from and like a, a new perspective, like having those checking the assumptions that you checked before you, you run like a form of verification or the, the invariants right. themselves. But especially, and... I think what's challenging, like, because I think there's like this mindset that, because one way to use these like invariants is like a protocol defines invariants and you are trying to make sure that those always hold. Okay, that's like, I think more of like a developer's way of seeing it. Um, and the more hacky way of seeing it is like, there's something I want to accomplish. Can I make sure that it is impossible to accomplish? Uh, and that's kind of like both with testing and with like manual review. That's like kind of my mindset always is like, I'm trying to prove to myself that something's impossible. Uh, so if I see like when you're talking about the math stuff, implicitly what I'm saying is like, I, can I see this in a way where I know if you showed me uh, A equals B plus C, A minus B must equal C, I'm just like, okay, I can do that. I know that that is impossible for that to be wrong. Okay, I can like see that system. And I'm trying to get things to that system where I can say like, I know that I'm helpless and that there's this is rock solid. Uh, so often like, I'm like, I'm not actually allowed to share the, uh, Trust and I found a large, bug in, in actually December and one of the top five biggest bug bounties on Immunify, uh, we found a critical vulnerability. Um, and it was basically this, it was starting with like, there's a thing I want to accomplish. It should, they are explicitly blocking it. Can I prove to myself that it's impossible? Well, yes, they would always catch this, but what about, okay, let's keep going down the chain until we find like, oh, but that isn't actually rock solid. Uh, and so I think like with, with fuzzing and invariant testing, I don't think I'd be good at saying your protocol is safe because I've tested all invariants, but I'm very good at, there's this thing that's bothering me that feels suspicious and I'm going to make sure I can completely dismiss it and know that it's safe or I'm going to find a way that it's not. And so it, it like starts with the idea. Whereas I think a lot of this, uh, 
a lot of the people working on invariant testing stuff can can like start with like a list of 30 invariants to hold and and uh and like miss the what would be most uh biggest problem if it went wrong you know yeah I've been curious about that bug you guys found for quite a while now. Do you know when you're going to be able Actually, to I'm looking share? Up, I've been looking at the date because they they told us that September 18th, which is two days ago, would be the latest date that we would be able to share it, uh, but that we had to wait until they released a blog post about it. And I have not been told that there's a blog post out or after the date. I still think I probably shouldn't say anything, but uh should be any day after six months later. All right, all right. I will not hold my breath yeah, then. So. Um, and you're one of the biggest proponents of like collaborating with other auditors and working together, which can sometimes be really tricky and even counterproductive is if not done in a good manner. Do you have any framework for collaboration? Yeah. What makes you say it's counterproductive? Like, what's a, what's an example of that? Well, I think if you're trying to collaborate with someone and either you're going over something that you've been, they've been over already or um, just not communicating properly and that just adds a bulk, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, um, it, it depends on the dynamic and everything. So it can, you know, you also have the extra time of like explaining yourself and your ideas. Mm -hmm which you don't have to do if you're working by yourself. Yeah. And there's many kind of things that can pop up when you're working with other yeah, people. Yeah. Um, I think it depends what you're trying to accomplish. So, so I here, my, my view is like, what are you doing when you're doing an audit? It's some portion of the time is like review and make sense of how things work. And some portion of the time is like, think of the ways that things might go wrong. And some portion of the time is like, see if those things are actually problems. And it seems to me that the most important of those is like the creative part, you know, like the coming up with things that could go wrong. And I think that it depends on what you're doing, right? Like, I think this is most true in bug bounties and, but also true in contests and also true in audits, but maybe to a lesser degree. Um, and so I, I have never found it particularly helpful working with someone that we can like explain how the protocol works to each other. It's like, I just read the code. We both know how to do this on our own. Um, and if you're not really communicating, then like you might as well just be doing them separately. It doesn't really make much of a difference. But what I feel very confident in is like, if I, if I finished auditing something and then I had enough time to literally sit next to you while you audited it and mumbled to yourself your thoughts and ideas the entire time it would it would spark things half the time i'd be like oh i already explored that shut up move on but if i had unlimited time sometimes it would spark something new right um and the more you're in a situation where like a few sparks are really important like bug hunting or that kind of thing the more that like it's worth that's that's very valuable and that's probably more valuable than a lot of the other stuff you would be doing um And so I also, and, and add to that, that I find like the other parts don't take a whole lot of time. You know, like I don't find, I was just saying like, oh, like I feel like, oh, a week's like not, a week's not enough time that I used to think it was, but it's like, well, a week's not enough time because I'm like spending three days going down rabbit holes. Like, I don't think like the core part of 
doing something by yourself and trying to just get it done it takes that much time. The point is to like inject ideas. And so, um, yeah, what I've found really useful is basically trying to say, okay, my ideal is that we are, is that we are auditing, we're taking turns auditing and we're sitting in a room next to each other. Never done that. So I don't know how good that would actually be, but I'm trying to say how close can I get to that experience while minimizing the time it actually takes. And so the closest I've come to that is basically like, um, start a discord channel for each idea and just set the bar really low for what you share and only look at it. Don't distract yourself looking at it. If you're in the middle of auditing, look at it when you have time. Uh, but that you're basically getting the stream of what catches the other person's eye and what seems interesting to them and what they found and, um, yeah, what they wish they could find, but they're bumping up into a wall against, but maybe you have the other missing key that goes with it. Uh, so yeah, I think like, uh, and, and never mind, that's like the cool, I'm giving all this justification. There's really two other reasons why I think it's good. One is that it's like, it's way more fun. Uh, I don't know, like I've been booked from, I basically decided for the summer to shift into just doing private audits and, and not do contest or bounties for a few months. And that, that ends actually in two days and I'm back to, back to the, the wild west. But uh, doing solo audits back to back to back like, can get kind of boring. It's like, I'm just by myself, code base ends, a new one starts. Like I'm, it's this cool little challenge myself. It's way more fun to work with someone else and like, just like celebrate and be excited when you find stuff and figure things out. Um, and from a learning perspective, if you're working with someone you really like admire, especially someone who thinks differently from you, like what a window into how they approach things that's just to totally different. Uh, kind of have this image of like, if people are good at something, they're like somewhat similar. I've never seen anyone who, in this space who works in a similar way. Like everyone is, even if they're like doing the same things on the checklist, their brains, are, everyone's brain is so fucking weird. <laughs> uh, and so it's just, it's cool to get to see how someone else seeing the same thing you see where their mind goes. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's fun. I learn a lot from it. And I think it's really useful if the goal is to find the one or two biggest things. I don't think it's like the most efficient use of time. If the goal, if you were trying to like get a report done, that's filled with lows on something that's, that's like simple or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. And I agree that that's the, the most fun way to do what we do is talking with other people. And there's, it's harder putting words why it's more pleasurable, but when you, it's kind of like, I don't know, just being able to get somewhere that you couldn't by yourself, yeah. it's always like rewarding, yeah. you know? And I, I don't know, I, so like one of the guys I, I have like an office here, uh, with a friend who does a bunch of stuff in the Starknet ecosystem and another friend who works at the EF doing security. Uh, and the guy at the EF previously was in the defense industry, like worked at Raytheon doing like exploit dev. And the stories and like, you can like feel the experience like being at war, you know, where it's like, oh, we're like trying to like stop this like very serious national security threat style thing. We're working for months as a team on like one massive issue we're, and then you fucking figure it out. You you figure out how to like make drones fall out of the sky that are shooting civilians or something. It's like the team excitement of like solving that and doing it. Um, 
is like unparalleled. And obviously there's like lots of negatives of that world and they don't, I'm, I'm sharing kind of like the, like the reality is they don't know a lot of the stuff what it's being used for or whatever. So it's like, it's not exactly like that, but there's, there's like a magic to a team working hard to figure something out and then like solving it together that I think like you don't get when you're by yourself. And especially when you're by yourself, um, just like, Oh, look, there was like an obvious issue that we've all seen the pattern of before. Like I, I don't care. Yeah, for of sure, uh, of course. And I think that's just biologically embedded in yeah. us. You know, we are the social animals and we like getting together and like conquering or whatever. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I decided to join a firm as well. Cause I was like missing that element of just having someone to like on a daily basis, be like, okay, um, this is what they're looking into. This is what I'm looking into. Like we're tackling this together and when we figure it out, yeah. that's uh, just, the, I just feel like this kind of feeling, it's okay to go for like a short period of time, but then eventually, at least for me, it's something that everyone's going to start to crave eventually. And I have a theory that even the most successful solo independent auditors eventually are going to merge into some sort of a team setup. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing a few things point. through Trust Security. So like we just finished one that I was working with Trust on that was, uh, that was really fun. And like the, the thing that is, I love doing it as like a fun thing together. And I love doing it, to, like I said, like learning from the person. So like, it's my ideal is to work with different people all the time. So like, I, this is part of what draws me towards maybe moving towards spending more time on bounties than, than on audits is like, I've got probably 10 to 20 people in this space who I've never worked with, who I've talked to a bunch who I would love to, to work, to like do something with. I would love to just line up the full next year of, take two weeks with each of them, pick a different target, do bug bungee hunting. I maybe sometimes fly to the same place and do it live in person. I'm like, that sounds fucking amazing. What? Uh, That'd be so yeah. dope. So, yeah. So like, and I honestly think, I mean, I was just saying this to trust and I was talking to the spearmint guys about it as well for a paradigm CTF that I was like, you know, whoever goes in person is going to win. Like tell me yet yeah, all these teams are like the fucking most elite people tell me you don't get six people in a house together for the weekend and they don't win. Obviously they're going to, uh, that it's just like, but yet yeah, we're all doing this shit with tens of millions of dollars on the line and just like not flying to the same place. Like in any other setting with stakes this high, uh, it would just, it would be obvious. Uh, so it's something I want to, if I didn't have kids, I'd be jumping around the world doing it right now. Instead, I got to convince people to fly to Austin and, and do it with me. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think there's like tons to do that would be really fun in terms of how to set things up and like so much there's everyone in the space is so fucking cool and nice and smart and just like fun. I, I think there's like yeah, I look forward to doing more of that. Yeah, I mean if you have a comfy couch, you know, just send me an invitation. Yeah, yeah you got a long uh, but point. it's it's definitely true. No, you have a better experience you have a bigger excuse to calm down here, you know, because you have your bestie and then we can hang out as well. Eventually. I think you'd have a lot of fun out here. Are you the kind of person that it's into like nature kind of thing yeah. as well? Yeah, I think you have a blast here. I think you should definitely organize to, to come here. In regards to the ZK part of things, have you done any security on that side? What, what drives your curiosity more in that, that yeah. area? 
honestly, it just feels magic. Um, you know, it is one of those things where like, I, I did like a little cycle of ZK stuff, uh, right when I left Scribes, like, uh, before I got into security, like, like early last year, uh, like spent like a month on it and like wrote a bunch of circom and was like, whoa, this actually works. And like, I can learn it this quickly. Like, obviously I was like learning how to do it, not the underlying math. Uh, and then earlier this year, I went back and kind of did another cycle of like, understand the math and get it a bit more. I, <coughs> I have like, I think there's like a level of a ZK bug that I could find, but I would be, I'd be comfortable doing like bug bouncing hunting around that. I wouldn't be comfortable doing an audit. I, 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 I don't feel like I have the like thoroughness of understanding and like maybe most people don't, but I'm, I'm not going to like offer an audit and something that I don't feel like I'm like a rock star at. Um, but I guess what's like, yeah, what I'm curious about is like, it does feel like there's just like a ton of cool use cases for it. Uh, the, it, the text like developing super fast. Uh, yeah, it's just like, it seems, it seems, uh, magic. Uh, so I'm working with Aztec. They've got their, uh, their like new chain that's launching soon. Um, and they switch so that can, that's using ZK to do like private and public state all on the same contracts. Uh, so I'm working with them to build like an early proof of concept of a, of an app that they have in mind that would be cool to have on the chain. Uh, so that's, that's like my fun little like side project to get into ZK stuff a little more and like build something, but I'm, I'm more interested in building a ZK than the security, at least for right now. It's just like, it feels, it feels like cool. And there's a lot to do that couldn't be done before. Yeah. I think Aztec is probably my number one, favorite thing that's happening in crypto right now because that's i feel like hashtag is the thing that blockchain is actually supposed mm -hmm. to be because it has the privacy aspect to it you know like ethereum is cool but it's unrealistic that this is going to be like actually the the base layer for all the things that we need to do on chain yeah. but with privacy and hashtag it is actually like feasible to do a lot of things that we want to do like move personal finances yeah. on chain transact like regular things because you know no one wants to walk around with like a stamp on the forehead or like i have five million dollars in my account or like you know some people um, would want to so but yeah most of them. <laughs> yeah any any sane people yeah. wouldn't want to do that uh, yeah and, it's amazing man. and, and the, the team is so impressive like i was i was playing with noir stuff earlier this year i like built a little game in noir just to like get the hang of things and it's just like they ship it's first of all just like, incredibly easy to learn because it's so rust like uh, it just like works well the team like ships and updates things super fast it's just like oh, yeah i've just been like so impressed with with everything from them so yeah i'm excited to like get a chance to like build something a little more serious and, and collaborate with them a bit more yeah what are you building and if you're not allowed to share that it's fine or if you're allowed to share it but just not publicly i can cut no, it no i think I'm, as well. I'm, i think i'm good to share if it's going to be a while before you release so i'm, I'm building uh yeah yeah it's so gonna be a while. we're we're still unsure 100 percent, but the plan is to try to build zk poker that has like private state of the cards whatever there's some complexity with that that might require like a ton of proofs uh, unless i can figure out a clever way around it so the goal is going to be to start to try to figure out a clever way around it and then if not, do some kind of other uh, game-related thing to, like, leverage the private state. Yeah, that sounds super cool. I've been thinking recently because I saw some drama with, like, ZK Casino or something right. like that. And it just got me wondering, like, 
what would it take to do a ZK poker that's actually just like plug and play? Like how how hard would it be? Because there are so many different states and so many yeah. different possibilities. And I don't know enough about ZK to see like well, yeah, how yeah, what sort of infrastructure you need to support something yeah. like that. I mean, the biggest challenge is shuffling the cards, right? Because like you you can do private state for everyone. That like makes it really easy, but what card you can have has to rely on what can't be the same as the card I have. And my card is private state. So you can't, so, so you can't know it. Right. So there's like, there's this like tension there um, where there's a few ways to possibly solve it, where like you can have every person at the, t at the table do some kind of like shuffle algorithm uh, that then once everyone has done it, there's like proof that nobody could be colluding. And then that becomes the deck that then gets split up and only you can decrypt what your cards are supposed to be out of that. So like, there's, there's like, there is a path to doing that. Um, the other thing that I've been playing with is like, if you could have, it depends what level of centralization you're comfortable with, you know? So like what you definitely don't want is the casino able to like dictate what the cards are. And that's what like all these online poker things had problems with. Um, but if you're comfortable with the casino, for example, uh, knowing what the cards are, so that I guess they could leak them, but if you can get, if you can have that trust assumption, then you could, for example, I think use like Chainlink VRF to generate a random number. The random number represents the entire state of a deck of cards, which is it's sufficient to hold just barely. Um, the casino then like sets everyone's cards as private state, and like like I think there's there is. Uh, or actually the casino wouldn't use that because the chain link VRF number would be public. So the casino would basically like um, commit to some value that then would get hashed with that to create the deck of cards. Like, I think there's a way to possibly do this with like, that's much more convenient with slightly lower trust assumptions um, or slightly higher trust assumptions. So, so uh, that'll kind of be like the playing with over the next little bit. And then the building of like, is there a version of this that actually makes sense and is cool to, for them to, to be able to like launch with? Yeah, the the getting a random number on chain, it's such an interesting problem that I think once solved, it's it's gonna make so many applications so much easier to to implement and to make happen. I mean, not that we cannot do it right now, but is it's always has some like extra steps. Yeah, I mean the other, if you look up mental poker, there's a bunch of papers about this. Um, this was like originally, uh, like the the people who invented the rsa algorithm had like worked on this paper that was like over the phone is there some scheme you could do back and forth with assuming you have computers to do the like encryption to decryption that would allow you to play poker just from like verbal back and forth uh, and then that's continued to to like be developed um and so yeah there's something there's some like decent literature on this but all the literature assumes the like complete like no trust for anyone uh, and so i think that's like that's like the worst case scenario and then like as you think about what is acceptable to trust you can maybe make things more efficient yeah it's such an interesting area because i don't know everything is just like a puzzle yeah. in that in that thing like every little thing is like oh yeah. there's something here we can figure yeah. out uh it's just like an endless bit of curiosity yeah. and, and time to lose yourself in it yeah um, the, uh, those, yeah, those three I, guys, the like Rivest, Shamir, and uh, Adelman, 
who do did RSA. I feel like all of them are that, you know, like they're like, they love, especially Adelman. I've like followed a bunch of his stuff. Dude, like, so he was the, he was the younger one. So it was like the two older, I guess like professors or like later students, whatever. He was like the younger person who would get brought in on these cryptography projects because he was really good at breaking it. So they would like bring him in to be like, are we sure this is solid? Uh, so which is like, first of all, I already fucking love him just for that, you know? He did a bunch of that and was like deep in the math and cryptography world. Then he left to go work on AIDS for like 20 years. Like, what? Then he left that and invented DNA computing. And if you haven't read the DNA computing paper, it's like five pages. And one of the coolest things ever, basically the idea is like, how could we, because if we're, if we're mixing a bunch of DNA like in a vat and seeing how it connects, if we restrict the connections to certain rules, it can basically solve problems in massive parallel that we wouldn't be able to solve with traditional computers. So like, I'll, I'm sure I'll get some of the details fuzzy, but say, you're, say you have like a, a graph with a bunch of possible things that can connect and you encode each node as a string of DNA that has like an end that only matches with the, the other end of the nodes that it's able to connect with. So you kind of have these like strands that represent nodes. Kind of like a protein. Yeah. But like... no, but you're, you're literally taking a single strand of DNA and making the, the like ends pair with something else so that if you mix those together, they would, they would kind of join, you know? Um, and so then if you, so you take all those individual strands that could connect in that way, you mix them all together. So now you've, assuming you have enough DNA, you've basically made every combination of paths that could exist through this. And then you're trying to solve a problem. Like what's the short, what's the, uh, is there a path that touches every node once and gets through all them. And you can do this just by, by like understanding DNA stuff. I'm saying like, well, we can use like electro gel spectrography or whatever the fuck it's called to see how fast it moves to get the, the right number of base pairs. And once we have that, we can cut out everything that doesn't hit every node once. And then, yeah. then uh, like, uh, I forget what the, what the trick was, but there was like a way to basically like coat a ball in some chemical that would grab the ends to prove that certain nodes were included in the chain. So they would run that through each node. And so they like found this way to like physically in a lab do all this. And at the end of it, have a DNA strand they could decode into the path and the path solved the problem. Uh, and so it's like, it's like a really short, like four or five page paper. That's just like a huge aha of like, whoa, do that. Uh, and it, I feel like that hasn't really been pursued much. Like there's lots of DNA storage solutions, like companies working on that. I don't see a lot of people working on DNA computing, um, but I think it's cool. It's like the stuff that Quantum has said it could do in the future. It kind of has the ability to do like a mini version of that in the short term if people can figure out the right ways to encode algorithms as like steps in the lab. So anyway, yeah, I just, the guy's fucking fascinating. Uh, and like clearly thinks in a like, a way that I admire. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, there's certain individuals that they're just like a few, at least one or two standard deviations ahead of like regular mortals. Cool. I don't know. It's just there's something that seems almost like magic when you see like these like crazy ideas coming up in, like from just one guy's mind that is just very inspiring who, who are other examples where you think of people who are just like who are like that um 
pioneers, you know, like for example, the guy that I was talking about, the Michael Levin yeah. guy, that's probably the first guy that comes to mind that if, if you're trying to learn the things that, you know, he, he's coming up with, is there's nothing that no one can understand about it. But just the insight to look at it, things from a different perspective and like trying to put all those things together by yourself, you're like, yeah, I don't think I would have come up with this. Like I would never seen it from this angle, you know, and it's amazing that someone did. And maybe it's just a matter of perspective and something that can't be manufactured and you need to like have had your life experience and being the places that you've been and done the things that you right. do to come up to to like you know it's essentially like your the nature and nurture and timing of your situation that put you in that place to have that idea right. and just like the serendipity of the world that enable you to be who you are and then that makes the idea come to life which in one end is like so incredible but on the other end is like almost impossible not to happen. Right. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I think, I don't know, yeah. I'm more and more sold on the, like, I, it's just such a, an impossible advantage to be doing what you want to do. Like, you're just, you're, there, the, like, when you're talking about that, it's like, okay, what are the chances that someone learned this field and this field and this field and they all came together and that's why it's like, like a hundred percent they're learning everything that seems interesting to them and thinking about it and playing with it there's weird connections that after the fact would seem like oh my god how did they end up right at that intersection and it's like because those are the things they're drawn to and like they're the common thread and uh yeah i think like uh i think like trusting that is like you can't end up in the wrong place because it's like literally the place that that like is meant for you uh, and then I think like that's where yeah, all I the think... interesting things are, you know, it's like, that's the stuff that no one else is that like weird mix of things that you are. Uh, and so there's just these ideas that seem would seem magical and impossible to anyone else, but would just feel natural to you. Yeah, I think ultimately curiosity is the best alpha possible. If you're curious about something and you're just obsessed with feeling your curiosity, then eventually some very unexpected set of things are going to line up you're gonna be like oh shit like who knew this would be a thing um so yeah i think things are amazing like that if you just you know keep looking to things and also it's a big problem at least for me that i'm inherently really curious and i find it really frustrating because i don't have enough time in in my day to like go about and like read all the things that I want to read and sometimes that low-key pisses me off a little bit and I'm just like you know I really want to be doing this stuff but I'm like already too invested doing this stuff so what the fuck do I do for myself but it's a good problem to have especially isn't in this information day and age that we live in yeah totally it's uh yeah too many interesting things it's it's good life is long yeah and something else that I wanted to touch upon was your participation in the war room and it just give get a more hands-on detail report of that experience and how that was like. Yeah, for, for uh, sentiment. Yeah. Or have you been in any other war rooms as well since then? Um, no, I don't think so. 
uh, yeah, there've been some places I've been like been helpful, but I, yeah, it's been, that was the one where I was really like all in. Um, and so, yeah, I was, uh, I was like, I, I was out golfing with my parents actually. And started, I got a message from sentiment team being like, uh Oh, like alert. And then a message from uh, Alex, the entrepreneur right after and I'm like, okay, shit, things are going down. So like quickly on my phone was like, what is this? Um, kind of like loosely made sense. They'd already figured out like that it had to do with this balance or reentrancy that was from a previous contest and the one that, that I'd audited, but that I like understood the code for. Um, and I was like, okay, I got a jet. Like I'm not finishing this round of golf. So I, I like ran to my car and got home or went back to the office. Uh, and so basically the war room was, uh, it was, this was soon after the Euler hack had been like returned and resolved. And so Alicia from Euler had still like, was like knew, knew this fucking playbook backwards and forwards. So, so she had gotten out of this war room and just like took charge. It was like actually incredibly inspiring and, and like, I ended it just being like, nobody could have done a better job than she did in this situation. She was amazing. Um, but basically like brought together all the, the people. Um, there's there's like, I guess there's some stuff that I probably shouldn't, shouldn't share, but um, basically the group divided into the group that was focused on the hacker and getting the funds returned and the group of us that was focused on uh, like patching the issue. Uh, so yeah, I worked with, with the dev team to basically like get really clear on the issue, right? Throw something up the day, like uh, adapted into the like postmortem after, and then worked on the, basically tried to figure out like, what's the patch that would solve this? Because in short, the, they immediately paused everything. So it was like, it's safe for now, but how do we get this reopened? Um, and the problem is that there, so, so the core issue is that there was this balancer reentrancy that like read only reentrancy that had been a problem where someone could take some action on the balancer vault, uh, get a callback in the middle of the function when, when balances are incorrect from that callback, couldn't do anything in balancer, but if any other protocol was reading the value, the like values as an Oracle, it would get it wrong and then, and then go back to balancer and whatever. So that they'd basically be able to artificially increase the value of balancer LP tokens so that they could in the middle deposit those into uh, someone like sentiment look like they're worth a lot more borrow all the money on sentiment against them and then uh, the price come down so the problem is uh, there's no solution to this that uh, stays as a view function so the only solution that balancer has is we'll call one of our other functions that has a non-reentrant lock on it and then that will revert if you're in the middle in this case. So, but they, but sentiment had this whole complex Oracle system that was all view functions. So there, there was some clunkiness there of like, okay, how do we set this up so that it's able to make that call in the middle and whatever. So, so yeah, figure that out. Basically I wrote a proof of concept of the hack and had it running so that we could then, that was kind of my job was like write the hack so that they can then deploy their fix like fake deploy the fix and then run the hack against it and make sure that it's protected. And then a few other simulations around that. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was basically it. Like just like grinded for that night as they were working on the fix and problem solving that writing the proof of concept, which I always find fun, got to like go back to the block and run it and be like, Oh fuck it worked. And all the money's gone. That's not good, but, uh, at least we got it figured out. Um, and then yeah, 
like kind of like on my computer locally, deployed their hat, their solution, made sure everything was protected and then gave them the thumbs up so they could deploy it and go back. So they, they ended up, I think the hack happened at like, at least my time, it was like 2 p.m. And at by like 11 p.m., they already had the contracts reopened with the fix deployed and everything good. So like it was really like smooth and press them on that end. And I think the funds were returned like 24 hours after that. So as far as hacks go, they like, they crushed it on the fix and they crushed it on the, like getting the funds back. They did, they did an amazing job. But it was cool. It was yeah. cool, like speed and effectiveness and number of people. There's probably like 30 people in this group chat and everyone working on different things at the same time between like catching the hacker and communicating with them and uh, figuring out how funds will be returned after they come back and deploying the fix and all these moving pieces. And like, yeah, their, their like leadership did an amazing job. Alicia did an amazing job. And like, it was, it was very, very cool to see. It's probably the best possible scenario you could ask for yeah. in that type of situation. Straight yeah. up, no one lost. I, the I only loser someone... in that was Sherlock. Like Sherlock had to pay a little bit of the, basically the gap that the hacker was allowed to keep, like the 10% Sherlock covered. So everyone else was fully made whole. I guess sentiment from their perspective, it was like not great reputation wise. Sherlock paid like, I think it was like 50 or a hundred grand and there were no other consequences. It was like, uh, as but as good as it can go. I wish someone would film a war room yeah. scenario and just have it like, you know, published after everything is resolved. I think that would be a great resource for the community in general. And the more of these we have, the more people with that we could analyze and be like, okay, this is what this group did right. This is what this group did wrong and how we can make the perfect framework for like a, a war room scenario because you have all these different things that happen and every time there's different there's people with different amount of experiences and different circumstances and it's really hard to um, learn from the past in that sense because if you've been to one war room the likelihood of you wanting to not being one anymore is very high so you're going to try to make everything in your power to make sure that doesn't happen again but that also kind of creates that barrier to learning right. where the next person to be in a war room is not going to have that same right. level of expertise and is not going to be able to leverage that experience so yeah the one issue is it'd be cool to make it a, a thing i think there's um there's quite a bit that is done from the perspective of catching the hacker that if it was made public, then hackers would start to like make sure that they weren't susceptible to that or understand the tricks or the mindsets or whatever. Uh, so I think there's like a little bit of a, of like a need to protect some of those strategies. Uh, but for sure on the technical side, I think there's like no doubt that that would be helpful. And then there's probably also things on the, on the non-technical side in terms of like, what are all the things that need to happen? We need to think about communications. We need to think about communication with the hacker. We need to think whatever. Like there's, I think there could be better resources about it for sure. Yeah, I think there's definitely some things that are, you know, you can't really share openly, but for a lot of it, it is definitely useful when not the instrumental overall. Yeah. Like, you know, how, what, what people do you need in place? Like, how do you set up everything? 
how do you contact people and there's so many different areas where let's say if you're like a fresh protocol founder that it's like a quick riser mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you have like 50 million or 100 million or whatever the value is and then you're going through a hack you know like shit no one told me that i needed to, right. to know this stuff what do yeah. i do now yeah so just having like a, a easy plug and pl plug and play thing that you can like do it yeah. definitely could save a lot of money in the long run i told alicia uh i don't know if she actually said this to her i think i did but she's, she's at Polygon now, but I was like, you should literally just sit around and should be like on speed dial if this happens for whoever this happens to. And it like, you deserve to get paid a ton for it. Like uh, seeing how she performed, like the best solution for the industry is that she, everyone chips in to pay her to sit around and wait for hacks to happen. <laughs> There's like, you, cause like that knowledge, it's like you said, like someone who, who's like been through it at the center of it multiple times, uh, know stuff that no one else does you know yeah i'm sure there's you know information that it's sensitive and obviously we don't want to make it easier for hackers to get away with things but i imagine that the bulk of it it's you know wouldn't be a problem to share especially because i imagine that a lot of people that find themselves in that situation will not have the luxury of having any or at least a good idea of what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to do it and having that experience or that um advice coming from yeah. someone that experienced might make the difference between losing all your money or keeping yeah. most of it yeah it's crazy the stakes, um, so the stakes yeah. are high yeah and when the stakes are this high it's hard to think clearly and being like, okay, this is a good idea. This is not a good idea. Let's execute. Let's, let's not execute. Um, and on another topic, I didn't get to compete in your CTF, but I had a look for it. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you is how was the process of creating it? Cause creating a CTF, if, is vastly different from like exploring a protocol. Yeah. So how did it go? Was it like an organic process that you kind of like, okay, I'm going to put this piece and now, now I'm going to put this piece in here over something that you masterminded. Where did you get the inspiration from? Did you sort of have a inspiration for the whole thing together and like I'll fill in the bits and pieces or was it like one by yeah. one and then you just kind of like, it was together. more bottom up for, for me. I think other people maybe do it differently. Um, I had the perspective of this where like, I feel like a lot of the Curta ones, especially are very like, um, are like puzzle heavy, you know, more than like, more than security. You know, they feel um, there was like a lot of huff. There's a lot of, um, of like, uh, basically like, solving a kind of like math more like a math problem uh, and i think that's actually there's there's been some that are different since then but i was like okay i want this to be like very security first like i want it to be like a hack uh so i started honestly just thinking about like what are the things what are like the actual pieces of evm knowledge that i've like felt like i've been most surprised by you know whether it's like i discovered something that was like whoa i wouldn't expect that that's how it would work or uh, like seen 
some issue that I'm like, like what are the, the vulnerabilities that I missed or issues that I missed where I was like, whoa, that, I missed that because of like actual EVM knowledge gaps. Uh, so there were a few things that, uh, there, there are probably 10 ideas I had from that. Uh, one of them being, um, let me try and think of, uh, of, so, so I'm trying to make sure I don't say something that might actually be used in a, in a future in the, in the trust security CTF that's, that's coming. Uh, but like one of those was, was like that if in a try catch block, you are expecting a return value and no return value comes, it reverts rather than going to the catch block. Um, one of those was, um, I, one of them that I didn't use was if you take the, the like max or like the minimum in 256 and take the negative of that, it equals itself. That's a weird one. Uh, because if the way that I didn't know so that one, the maximum number in an in 256 is one less than the minimum, right? Cause like it's an even number, there's a zero. So it has to go one way. So if you do the negative, it tries to flip to one higher than the maximum and then overflows and comes back to the same negative number. Uh, so there were, whatever, there were a bunch of these things that I was like, oh, these are weird. And I, how many of these can I stuff in with making it make sense? So I started with that try catch piece. Um, another one was, was that I love that I've always tried to do things with and never works out is just that the transfer from function for NFTs in the RC20 has the exact same signature. And I'm like, oh, there's something fun there. So I just like started like playing with these building blocks. And I was like, okay, I've got an idea of how I could like loosely connect these, but like the storyline didn't really make sense. And it was like kind of lame. And it required every person to deploy a, like three contracts. And the thing was really messy. And then just one night I was like, okay, I've got to figure out how to make this work. And so I kept like refining and refining and refining until eventually I was like, whoa, this all lines up. But the story doesn't, still doesn't really make sense. And so then I went back to it a little later and was like, okay, how do I make the story make more sense? And then I started to get paranoid of like, wait, is there a security? Like now I've made this thing pretty complicated. Is there like a security vulnerability in this that I'm not thinking of? Am I going to be embarrassed? I'm going to launch this and uh, someone's going to whatever. Someone's going to like crack it with like some dumb thing that I didn't mean for them to uh, and not do any of the fun stuff. Because in the end, it was like probably like six big ahas you had to have to figure it out. You know, I ended up that you needed like the pre-image hash of an address you couldn't get, but you could get the pre-image of the 32 bytes and then use that instead. So there was like a whole bunch of these puzzles that you needed to figure out and stack. I honestly messaged him. I was like, I wouldn't be surprised if no one gets this. This is so hard. And like, I got it in two hours. I was shocked. Uh, so, but yeah, I started to get paranoid. And so I, I figured out that, well, first of all, I'd set it up so that you had to like change a token on like a, an address that I'd like a, a contract I deployed. And so I built a <laughs> like a Rust bot that was monitoring the chain that if anyone did it, it would just flip it right back. It just like it would send the transaction to flip it back. So I already had that. So I was like, okay, if, there, if I find anything that might be an issue, I could solve it. And I actually figured out that because I was doing a delegate call, it shouldn't have been able to be possible to self-destruct, but there actually was a very, very complicated way that if you solved it, you could also self-destruct my puzzle at the same time. And so I spent so much extra time, probably half the time I spent on the whole thing was figuring out, basically deploying it as a create two contract 
so that if someone self-destructed, I could have my Rust bot come back, re instantly redeploy the contract and set all the parameters, right? Uh, which uh, no one did. So I ended up kind of being a waste, but, I, but all weekend my computer had the script running, just watching, being like, I dare you to self-destruct me, we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, that was, it was, it was basically like a bunch of what puzzles could I stack together and then a, some massaging into a storyline that made sense and then a bunch of paranoia that I missed something. Yeah, that's so funny, the, the self-destruct thing. Um, I wonder if someone's gonna do it eventually with some like delicate call from like a CTF because you know usually after you're done with the CTF you're like okay like I got it you don't really like right. think about it anymore but that would be such a like a fuck you right. moment to the person that wrote yeah. it yeah yeah that's so the, funny. the interesting thing with it I'll, I'll share it because it's actually very brilliant so I my solution to the self because I'm delicate calling out anyone can self-destruct so I'm like how do I avoid that <clears throat> well for the self-destruct to work the function has to be able to has to like run to completion. If it reverts later, the self-destruct won't happen. So what I did is I returned data from the delegate call and I decoded that data, like ABI decode. If you self-destruct, you can't return data. It ends the, the call. So it would revert on that decoder. So I was like, okay, I think I'm safe from that. And then I realized if I delegate called to something that then delegate called again, then the second one could self-destruct. It could go back to the first one, and then that one could still return something that would decode properly. So I built this proof of concept uh, that was, how would I do this? So I had to solve the puzzle, double delegate call out, come back, and then return the right answer after self-destructing, and then it would run through the rest and explode. And I was like, uh, that was fun. <laughs> now let me just make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, shit, that's, is that why you were asking in our, our yeah. chat? about the self-destruct yeah. call i was like what is he like what is he looking into i don't like i can't think of anything that this could be <laughs> yeah. useful, useful it was for my paranoia. you know i was like i was trying to like think to myself I was like yeah but you could just like answer your question by looking at the protocol and seeing how it right. goes like I, i'm not like i couldn't visualize like what your like your situation yeah. was but now it all it's all coming well, together so what's interesting is i posted that um, in, the, in the like saloon chat with a bunch of people who are all like top auditors and no one caught that issue. Everyone was like, oh yeah, the return data should be fine. And then I posted it in the trust security group and a bunch of people said, oh yeah, it'll be fine. And the next day, HE1M came back and was like, actually, I found a way to do it. Who's, he's fucking brilliant. I, uh, he, he would be the person who would come up with that. But uh, yeah, so that, I probably, it probably was on the radar of like 15 top auditors. Not that they took it that seriously, but just as like a quick question. And he was the only one who figured out the way to be like, actually, no, you can do this double belly call on that. Uh, that would actually not, not stop. It. That's hectic. Do you have a POC for that? Yeah. 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 Then I will link that for anyone that wants to look it up. Cause that's a cool okay. one. It's very not intuitive. Um, sort of like the optimism hack that he did for uh, yeah. the, the Sherlock context. I feel like it has a similar vibe to it. Totally. Hey. And I actually, so I spent a week and a half earlier this year where right when the Polygon ZK EVM launched, Tim and I spent a week and a half trying to break it. Uh, and he, we basically, we found something that was also a similar type of issue uh that had, like had a very similar vibe like he's got a style of how his brain works and figuring that stuff out 
but it didn't end up working out because they uh, we we were like, oh, there's there's this weird like extra check that ends up solving it that stops it. It turns out it was a bug bounty that was paid out like two weeks earlier. That's why it was <laughs> checked. Uh, so we, if we were faster, we would have got it. But uh, yeah, he he's got an ability to think outside of the contract context in a way that I don't feel like many other people do. Like he, I, I feel like his brain sees the whole system of all the contracts interacting, not like a bunch of things that can have some interactions. And so there's, I mean, the, yeah, the optimism one, I, I still think is one of the like top five bugs I've ever seen anyone catch. It was fucking brilliant. Yeah. When you have the ability to just like have the whole system on your memory cache, yeah. like they like when you have like that when you're in that moment where like you can see every piece mm -hmm. is when like the magic yeah. happens but some protocols are like really complex and you can only see clearly one piece at a time yeah. and if you're able to like really unfog the whole thing is when you can like have the the most amazing yeah. findings yeah totally and that one i mean yeah it was it was real good and a random question do you have any stance on the debate between naming audits audits or security reviews i don't give a shit at all yeah okay i just thought you as coming from like a publishing company you could have like some interesting uh, no i think security review seems more right to me but I, I i it doesn't seem to me that it matters a whole lot i'm not sure why it's become a thing yeah yeah fair enough um i think in matters from like a client expectation perspective but ultimately it doesn't matter too much on like the the work that's actually being done other why than, i i, know, I, I hear that fact. perspective i'm not sure i get it like why why is there an assumption that an audit means something uh means something different than a security review is it like that it implies that it's like uh that it's like complete in some way yeah, I think if you're coming from a like, more like a traditional background, it might imply like a checkbox style sure. kind of thing where it's being audited and all those boxes have been ticked and now it's ready right. to move on or be deployed or yeah. whatever. Whereas uh, security re review has more the connotation of like, we have reviewed this and we've done our yeah. best to try and make sure everything is good, but it's it's not a... There's no check right. mark yeah, here. Yeah. I, I will say, you for know sure, what I mean? I think audit has more. For there. sure, like an auditor of any other kind, I think of as kind of like nebbish checklist person. Uh, that's like a different vibe than than most of the people I know in this space. So, uh, yeah, if I had to pick, I'd pick security review. Seems right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think it's just a interesting fun debate and to to splash some blood in yeah. the water when there's some disagreement, yeah. you know, we like some yeah. drama. And how do you think the security industry has changed since you started? Um, I'm not sure if it's changed a whole lot. I think there's like, um, I think there's more people trying to get into it. Uh, and I, I, I guess I think like there's, I imagine there are a lot of people who are seeing it as like a path to easy money in some way, which I think is like likely to backfire for them. Uh, it's like the opposite of that 
obsession kind of like excitement. Um, and so I, I think I'm like, I see a little more like uh, idol worship kind of vibe. And like a lot of people who are, you know, like the people who are like trying to like, um, who think there's like an answer that they're looking for that's going to solve it. And I don't know, there, there's just like, there's something that feels um, like maybe a little less authentic and a little less driven by curiosity in more of the people than uh, before, but not to a huge extent. It feels kind of similar just with, with more people involved. Um, which I think yeah, is a bit of a problem, enough. right? I think they're clearly like, we're not doing good enough, you know? Like, and obviously it's like, it's really hard to do well enough to, to like avoid hacks. But I feel like, I feel like when the day comes where security is less of an issue, it will be because we're doing something fundamentally differently and where we haven't figured out what that is yet. I think there's two parts for that puzzle. One is definitely the technical challenges. You know, it's just it's just technically hard to make sure something is secure because it comes from the business propositions and not that you can fundamentally um, have a computer set up for you. It's subjective to your business goals, what should and should not hold in a contract. So I think that technical part, it's really hard, but there's also the cultural side of things where it's just not it's not sexy to have to worry about your audit and your security when you're uh, you want to go to market you have like this cool idea for a protocol and you're all fired up you're like cool i developed it and it's it's sick it works and i just want to like use it it's just not cool to be like oh i have to like write all this tests i have to you know pay for all these expensive audits and then two months down the line you lose your other money and then you're like okay maybe i should look into it next time yeah right and yeah, I definitely see. Part of the issue is yeah, the excitement to launch is such a hard thing. I uh, yeah, I imagine that feeling of like I feel like I'm done. What do you mean months more of waiting and paying and back and forth and work? And it's like it works today. Let's go. Uh, I imagine that'd be tricky. Yeah, and there's a there's comes from all the all the different departments. You know, like if you're the founder, you're excited for launch. If you're the marketing team, like, of course, you want to get it going. Like, you're, you're announcing the launch and, like, that's how you're going to attract users. If you're an investor, like, you're, you want to see the thing, like, out right. there, making money, trying, see if it works. And one of the reasons why I started this is trying to make it more sexy. And if there's, like, a sexy component to security, oh, let's say they've been on this podcast and they're like, oh, you've been on the podcast, like, you... you seem like you know what you're doing and investors are looking for companies they're like the founder is already um aware and things of that nature and it's just more like revered as a whole by the industry and it becomes this like religious thing almost they're like oh like you know that it's hard to quantify it but it's, it's something that you just talk about like the same way as if you have a nice car they like some people know that you know you must be doing well if you have like a, a nice security thing people know that your protocol is gonna be worth something in a way if you can start to shift the culture in that sort of way i think it's part of the puzzle solved because as it is right now understandably it's just like 
let's just get this thing yeah. out there and like make things happen. Yeah, yeah. Whereas there's all this red tape that you would understandably have in infrastructure projects when you're like building an airplane or like building a bridge where you know people's lives are at right. stake. You can't just like ship right. it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I imagine there's so much so, on the tool, like even seeing the tooling of like web three security stuff versus the tooling that like exploit devs use where they're like, they've got their like crazy ability to like test. I mean, yeah, some of the stories that the, the guy I work with told me of like running like individual electrical signals through a piece of hardware and like disassembly, like reversing that into like which opcodes associate with them in order to figure out what the opcodes even mean of this, whatever. Like it's like crazy the shit that they're, that they're and like just wild fuzzers and all this stuff that, that I think like we're miles away from. Uh, and then that's, even all that is miles away from like what you're saying, like infrastructure projects of like, your the ability to like simulate very thoroughly how something would work in all kinds of different conditions and like there's yeah there's a whole lot of maturing that uh that there's room to do in, in the security side uh that before things look like a like building a bridge or an airplane but i think it's possible yeah and i think a, another separate problem that thinks it that makes it more unlikely it's the ease and of like deploying something on chain and just the nature of the the space you know it's just the innovation just wants to change things all the time yeah, yeah. and is that's something that i think is never going to change in this space even as it becomes more mainstream yeah. people are always want to innovate and try new things right and it's just something that you don't see in other critical areas right. like bridges. Yeah, yeah. There's no crazy innovation. Like I want to like go from here right. to here. Yeah, you know, yeah. just make it it's, work. Yeah, it's actually that's Whereas, so interesting. It's like it's like all all that like temptation, not only of software, but of like a new, cool, cutting edge area of software, but with the seriousness of infrastructure where like shouldn't fuck around that much. It's a really hard combo, obviously. Yeah, so I think it's almost more likely to try and mitigate that through a cultural perspective than through a pure technical perspective. Because I think at the end of the day, it's nearly impossible to actually solve it from a technical perspective. Because they're always like we're always going to be pushing the envelope to what's being done and what we want to make it to be possible. Uh, so that's my one of the two bits why I've, like want to try and push this podcast and trying to like you know make it a thing so maybe in the future it becomes more like a uh, feeling of like you know guilt rather than anything else that like oh my protocol is like it doesn't have any tests like how can i deploy the shit or like i have to at least like have like some inheritance tests before i can even consider like doing something with it otherwise everyone's going to look down on me or like an investor is not even going to consider like putting their money here or something like that yeah just trying to raise awareness or do some sort of psyop into people thinking it's going to be a, a good thing i think thing. what's tricky is it's just so like illegible like from the outside like from a user's perspective it's like 
never mind that they have no idea how many tests you have, but like, even if they knew there's not like a number or a metric or like, it's just, it feels so hard. Never mind. Like part of that's just their, their like effort. Right. But part of it is also like how good of a job they did. And it kind of comes back to what we were saying about insurance of like that only the security re researcher can really like price risk. Like people are talking about like an audit as like a rubber stamp, but it's like the audit doesn't say that you, you did a good job. It's like, I, it's like, hopefully says the auditor that they they're good, did a good job. I don't know, but that doesn't like, there are a whole lot of protocols that I've worked on where at the end, I'm like, this needs more work. Uh, and I'm not going to like, there's no like anti rubber stamp to give somewhere, but like if I was having to price insurance risk, I'd certainly price it really high. Uh, and so it feels like, I don't know what the like way of making that legible is. I don't think a lot of these things that like aggregate into like a score that's like an A, B, C, D is quite right. But like, it feels like you've, you've got this person in a security researcher who like has a pretty good sense of like, is this one of the good ones or not? But they're not really the right person. They're not like incentivized to like say that publicly. That would, that, I don't know if a client wants that or whatever. So it's like, it can get, it's kind of tricky to say like, how do you, turn all this stuff you're talking about into something that they can actually like show off and brag about and feel feel pride about as opposed to just like do behind the scenes yeah there's many issues wrapped up in in all of that right one of one of them is like just pure marketing your company can be shit at auditing but if you have a killer marketing and then you can get away with tricking founders into believing that you are actually doing a good job and trick investors and users into believing that it, the thing is actually remotely secure. Right. Um, you know, there's a few companies that everyone knows that are a big red flag in the security industry. But if you talk to people outside of the security industry, it's like, oh, we got our audit from like one of the top tier right. auditing firms and anyone that's in the business is going to be like, no, you're yeah. like, this is something that you should know. And how do you tell people in a way that they believe in you or they can, because they can't, they, you can't hope for people to be able to assess whether some security work has been done well or not, you know, because they're not experts. You can't expect people to be like, oh no, I know this company didn't do a good job because they didn't catch this type of vulnerability when they don't even know how to read code. That's crazy. And I think that's where it comes in to like, try and make a, a marketing effort or like a, an unbiased platform that people know that you have good intentions at heart and you can bring in external people and have like discussions from different sides of the table and sort of create this culture where the winner it's actually the the one that should be revered as the most competent right. and not just the one that has the most marketing budget or something but that's something hard to it do is. applies you know? in many many areas not just auditing it's uh yeah yeah and it's one of the things that i've been wondering like how can i make this more effective like what sort of avenues can i push this so this has the impact that I think it could have. And if you have any ideas to share, I'm open to hear anything. Like a, 
impact not only through the content they put out but from the sponsors that i choose to have on it and things like that and that could you know be um used to touch different people from the industry so like if i have a part of that touches on like interesting perspective from like investment all of a sudden i can make investors more security security aware and that type of thing yeah it's tricky i mean it's the same I see it with a lot of the like auditing firms wanting to do to like attract business where it's like this weird problem where like you're, you have to catch people at the exact right time. You know, like it's, it's like hard to know the protocols that you want to get in touch with until it's too late. Uh, and it, it's, I mean, this echoes stuff with, my, with the publishing company completely, right? Like you can't go out and be like, you should write a book right now. Like, Fuck off. I'm busy. But like, at the moment that they decide I want to do it, you need to be there. Uh, and so like, how do you, and it's a big decision and like, there needs to be a lot of trust. Like it's a weird, weird type of sale. Uh, and I think in a weird way, like what you're talking about is like, it's not a sale and that you're selling something, but it's a sale and that like, you're trying to catch and inform that person at the right time. Uh, and it's tricky to line up where like, you've got their attention before, before they're making that decision so that you're able to kind of have influence over it. Uh, but I think it's doable. I'll, yeah, let me think about it more. What what kinds of things might work? It's been a pleasure to have you here. It's been really fun talking to you, and I'm excited to see your next bug report. Huh? <laughs> more coming soon. I'm uh, I'm actually about to start. I guess it might be over by the time this is out. The uh, the Viper compiler contest. Uh, so I'm I'm, I'm going to start starting on Monday, doing that full time for five weeks. Uh, I'm like super interested in compilers and, and like wanted to go deep on that. So hoping some, some fun things will come out of that. We'll see. Awesome. Oh, it's been All a right. pleasure. Later, man. Good chat with you.